recording. All right, three claps. Ready? One, two, three. That looks nice. Uh, I'm Rami. And I'm Shannon. And this is Workplace Hugs. You might be asking yourself, what is Workplace Hugs? Well, it's uh, Shannon and I's podcast where we like to talk about work, workplace, things that are intriguing us, things that we want to discuss, um, whether it's a book that I read or a or a podcast that Shannon listened to, or an article that Shannon read, or a TED Talk that I may have viewed, something that we're intrigued by, something that we want to talk about, and something that helps us kind of expand our own toolkits and then gives you guys a chance to expand yours. Uh, the way it works is we'll start at 30,000 feet. We'll kind of talk about the topic, really high level, give an overview of it. Then we like to hop into the dirt level, the tactical, give some examples that we've had in our lives, in our careers. And then we want to hop into the eye level and really give you guys that um, tactical way of bringing it back to back to home. And, and what are the things that you guys can do in your everyday to use some of these um, lessons that we're kind of passing along? Did I hit that, Shannon? You hit it. Perfect. So let's introduce ourselves, Shannon. I've been talking, so you go first. And podcasting, I think you forgot. Uh, I'm Rami. I live in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I work on the. I don't even know how to ever describe what it is that I do. I like being in that like hole, like um, Chandler, where nobody knows what he does. Uh, but I've worked my way through business. I think the biggest thing for me is I started in a huge company with Shannon, kind of moved to a medium-sized company, and now I'm in a smaller tech company and and really just feeling out the, the tech side of the world um, in my director role that I'm in right now. So let's hop into it. It's my topic this week. The book that I read is Where to Care, How Companies Prosper When They Create Widespread Empathy, and the author is Dev Patnaik. Uh, Shannon, you have not read this book, correct? I have not. So it's really about human empathy will make you a better innovator. The idea is a lot of companies who succeed, uh, Nike, Pixar, Netflix, IBM, use innovation to continue to succeed, and empathy is a huge piece of that. Shannon is smiling at me. Why are you smiling at me? No, I think it works. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not good at looking at anybody when I talk, so. <laughs> okay, let's just not look at each other. That's perfect. So empathy is the ability to step outside of ourselves and into the shoes of someone else. It's about experiencing what it feels like to be another. So M coming from into and puffy coming from the word meaning feeling. So w- the book is really about how do you get more empathy in your company? How do you innovate better because of empathy? How do you prosper because of empathy? All these things. What I want to talk about, though, is empathic design from the perspective of either designing for yourself or designing for others, but keeping the customer in mind. So I want to go through two quick examples, both from Microsoft, uh, one really successful, and then one that really was a huge failure. So the successful one is 
and and Shannon, you can tell me if I'm I'm talking too much here, but have you heard the story about how the Xbox or the Zune were created? Okay, cool. So the Xbox was created by an innovation team of gamers, innovating for gamers to take on the PlayStation. So Microsoft looked at it and said, hey, this is a space that we want to play in. So how do we do that? And they found these gamers that were developers there and they said, all right, go build us a system. Go do what it is that you guys would want out of a system and and build that. And the Xbox ended up being massively successful because they took people who knew exactly what they would want. They let them build it for themselves, probably use their friends and and other people that they knew that wanted similar things and kind of iterated based off that feedback. The Zune, which I think most people have forgotten about. I've never heard of Zune. When you first said the word Zune, I thought you were saying Zune is in like Zoom conference call line. Like, oh yeah, I know what that is. Zune? Zune, Z-U-N-E. So it was Microsoft's attempt at taking down the iPod. Um... It was built to take down the iPod, but they used a business team that sole goal was build something that's our equivalent of the iPod. And I mean, I can tell you it was not successful. You can tell me that it was not successful by not even knowing what it is. Um, And so what's fascinating about it is they really took two approaches. One was design empathically with the people who know the business and know what they want to get out of it. And are are the true consumers of whatever this is? Or the other side, which was, hey, we're going to take down this thing, so how do we steal it? Um, the thing that I think is really fascinating about the Zune is if you take, if you look at Apple, they their whole motto is, we create things we want ourselves to use, like we want to use ourselves. And Microsoft didn't take that approach with the Zune, and that's why it failed. And so that's kind of where I want us to spend our time today. And I've got a few questions I want to ask you. Yeah. But do you have any questions so far? about the book, about any of the topics I kind of brought up? No, I think it makes a lot of sense. The one thing that intrigues me about this conversation more than anything, and even as we were talking before it hit me, I want to make sure that our listeners realize that everyone is creating, even though we're not designers. So I think sometimes we might think, oh, well, this podcast episode doesn't apply to me because I'm not a designer or I'm not like building something new. But really, like you could even be designing a new process and it applies to you. Yes. And I think where we'll hone it into, and I think where my examples are and where your examples are, are really about process building. It's not about building a completely new object. It's not the next gaming system. It's not the way we consume media. It's what are the things that you do in your day to day, whether it's process building, whether it's a new template for something, you're you're building a new file type. It's all of those things like you're innovating. And, and it's about how do you kind of take some of the wins that we've learned from this book or from ourselves and apply those to make yourself a better innovator and make the things that you're building more sticky. I love it. Let's get into it. Okay. So let's hop into the tactical. So my question for you is, Shannon, has anyone ever designed a process, a system, some sort of solution for you that wasn't what you wanted? person come in who was like a level above me and building a new tool that everyone at my level would be using and my biggest the biggest thing I remember from that time frame was that he didn't ask very many questions like he just was so sold that this was already the right thing to do like he knew the solution and he was basically coming to you for you to say yes exactly I love it I want that get it to me as quick as possible exactly 
actually no, it was my boss's boss had said, hey, I want you to meet with Shannon to like get her take on this. She's the you know person responsible for this. I was the, the captain, if you will, for our whole division for this part of the process or whatnot. And it just felt like I was supposed to just like bless it so he could move forward. And he really wasn't actually genuinely looking for input, which made me feel really crappy about the whole process. Do you think... So at that point, are you soured on it? Like, regardless of how it turns out, do you think you're not willing to use it? Yeah. And it was really unfortunate because it was a great concept. It, it, it is a great concept. Uh, but I was so soured on it that even, like, my taste in it made me not want to encourage other people to use it just by how he approached the design process. That makes sense. I think... What about you, Rami? Do you have any instances? Yeah, I think the biggest times for me are when exactly what you're talking about. Someone comes to you and goes, hey, we've been designing this thing that we're really excited is going to be a solution for you. And you go, oh, cool. How come no one's ever talked to me about it until now? And you're basically trying to show me a prototype. And then the, the part that I always get nervous when people show you something that's partially baked is that you can't now go back into the the dough of it and make a lot of changes and say, well, I would never use that file or I would never like... I don't use that style of something or what about my inputs? Because those aren't the inputs that I normally use. Like how am I supposed to get those as my inputs as opposed to what I normally do? And I think that's the part that gets confusing. And that's the part that is really tough when you're designing because you think someone needs something as opposed to knowing that someone needs something Mm. like being tasked to do something because you're the one designing it for yourself. So can you think of an instance in your life where something was designed for you, you're designed, and it went well or not? Yeah. The example I was thinking of when I was reading this and I was thinking about the Xbox Xbox gamers designing an Xbox system for themselves was when I was an analyst in my first role in the same company that you and I worked for with a big bullseye on our backs, um, the... One of the things that we did was we would set up items and we would kind of find a model item for them. And and without getting into more detail, it's really about when you set up an item, you got to say it looks like this item. So copy that one. And that process is really difficult. It If you care about it, it takes a lot of time. And if you don't care about it, you're probably just picking your best item. And who knows whether or not that's breaking everything. And so me and another analyst kind of sat down and said, this process sucks. How do we make it better? And as we started to talk through it, we talked to who we thought were really good analysts about how our kind of architecture of thought behind the like nuts and bolts of it worked. And then we talked to who we thought were like not as good of analysts who this tool would really help and talked to them about the execution of the tool and, and if it would seamlessly plug into what they were trying to do. And we continued to iterate based on our own knowing and, and being able to test it and then kind of the feedback from both ends. And it ended up being a project that still exists and is actually part of how they set up new items. It kind of got integrated into a, a larger new item setup process. But I think it only happened because one, we were designing it for ourselves. We continue to take feedback from both ends, both from the experts who could help us with kind of the analysis and the analytics of it. And then really the user base of making sure that they actually would use it in the way that it existed. And knowing that we were designing for ourselves made it a lot easier to make the integration a lot smoother. Would you say that you had empathy for the 
good and bad analysts? I think so. I think it's easy to put yourself in both of their shoes, right? When we look at the good analysts, we go, well, we think we're good analysts. So it's like easy to empathize with them and say, okay, as we're looking to be better at this, like who are the ones that really know the nuts and bolts of it? And then when I look at the other side, I go, I know days when I don't have enough time to do this. Maybe that's where these analysts are coming from. And that's why they, they are, they're struggling more with this process. How would I, knowing their issues or when I have those issues myself, feel about this process? That does sound a lot like empathy. Good job, Robbie. Way to be empathetic. Way to be wired to care. Thanks, Shannon. Um, do you have any good examples of designing a process and having it work out? We don't need to go that way. I'm so good at the bad examples. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yes. I, I can think of one off the top of my head, but it feels a little self-promoting, so I'm hesitant, but I'll share it anyway. For me, it's more of my coaching work. I just reinvented one of my products, if you will, one of my offerings that is called the Values and Vision Intensive. And I think I designed it better the second time around with more empathy because one thing that I find is that coaches, and we talked about this before, I'm really good at making people cry. Mm, yes, you so, are. Yes, I'm very talented at this. And so one thing that I'm trying to incorporate more is more play because I think everyone, I know from what my clients have told me that there's a lot of lack of play in their everyday lives. And so mm-hmm. I'm trying to incorporate more play into that product. So literally we play with toys now. So that's fun. Um, so when you were going from 1.0 to 2.0, were you taking feedback along the way actively or passively just through what you were hearing? I think passively through what I was hearing, no one had said like Shannon 1.0 is a bad product per se. So maybe I didn't do a great job of like designing with empathy because I didn't necessarily like really tap into people beyond just hearing my, uh, everyday clients telling me there's just very little fun in their lives. So if someone's going to sit down and have a serious conversation, like reevaluating what are the values that I hold for my life? What is the vision of where I'm going? Like, how can we make that a fun process for them? And honestly, I went back to my time at the place where we both work. I think we always avoid saying that name, which I think is really funny. And reflecting on some of the design thinking exercises that we do there of just incorporating more of a playful element to the design process which isn't really about empathy but anyways i digress next well and i think too kind of what you're getting at and i think what we're talking about is is how do you infuse as you design more empathy how do you care more about the people you're designing for and making their lives easier because that's the whole point of doing what you're doing right unless you're coming from a place of someone tasked me with this and I have to do this because I won't get promoted if I don't deliver on this, which to be fair is where a lot of design in major corporations does come from, right? An executive goes, Hey, we want to promote you to that next thing, but you haven't really done anything to have a broader impact. So how do you design something that has a broader impact? And I think that's the issue for most people is not turning that back on its head and saying, okay, I can have a big impact, but how do I talk to the people, find out what they need help with, and then take them along as partners, as opposed to looking at them just as the end goal of, I just need them to be my users at the end. I think switching that word user to either partner or customer, I think 
shifts a lot of the mindset and how you how you think how you interact with them in design thinking we always say the time with your um with your user your your customer with your with your the interviewee that you're talking to is the most precious time because you only get so much time with them and the rest of your time is at your desk and it's working with whoever else you're working with on this project and and you can't ask them questions because they're not in front of you and so using that time when you are testing when you are scoping when you're uh iterating it's really important to to really dig in and understand all those things as you're trying to redevelop or iterate knowing that there are gaps but you have to be okay with knowing that nothing you're doing is perfect yes and if you have challenges with this go back to our podcast on how to receive feedback yes (laughs) Right, because you can't really design if you're not willing to take feedback on what you're designing. And I think that's where a lot of us probably come from the wrong place in designing is I want to design because I'm awesome and more people should get to interact with my awesomeness. Mm -hmm. But it should be, I want to design because I have a skill set that I know can make people's lives easier. I can remove friction in some way. And how do I best leverage that and best have an impact on the groups of people that I want to impact? I mean, it's very logical to me that if you're designing something, you want to have empathy. You sold me on that point for sure. Like, wired to care. It makes sense. Empathy would be would be a huge aid in the design process. Did the book talk at all about how to build it or, like, how to do that? Or is that out of scope? No, it did. It talked about, like, how to become a more empathic company. And what it really said was there's three things. It said, and this is what Pat and I kind of said are the three tips to create an innovation culture of widespread empathy. The first one was to make it easy. So he said there should be like lightweight, lightweight methods uh, for people in your company to connect with the outside world. Um, The example, which I think is probably still in date is that executives at target would um, walk through a target store because they built one right next door. And this is what I always think is so fascinating. I've been to a lot of company headquarters and most of them are very far away from a store. Anyone that runs a brick and mortar, it's very far away from the closest one. They always go, oh yeah, the closest one is is the one and it's like a 15 minute drive. But the Minneapolis headquarters of Target is, I don't know, Shannon, what? A one and a half minute Skyway walk and a one minute not Skyway walk. Yes. Skyway being an elevated walkway that is enclosed because it gets very cold in Minneapolis. Uh, So that was the first one is make it easy. So things like having the store next door, make it really easy for the executives or all of the employees to walk from headquarters to say, I wonder how my, my section of the store looks to walk over there and look at it and watch people shop their part of the store. So that's the first one. The second one is make it every day. So surround your work environment with information about the lives of your customers. So this is something that happened a lot at uh, Honest, where I used to work. We would get feedback from customers saying, oh, the diaper and the rash cream worked out so well. Before we switched to yours, like the other diapers, my baby kept getting rashes in all the time. And now that baby is no longer getting rashes because he's using that thing the new diapers or whatever it is. And so that's one part of it is like having that feedback around. I think the other piece of it 
is kind of what Nike did, which is, have you seen Nike's headquarters? I have not. So there's every sort of sports training area on the campus. So you, you want to see a track and field, you want to see a basketball court, a soccer field, like they've got all of it. And so the idea is if you're perpetually living the same life as the people using your product, then you continue to innovate because it's around you. Uh, the third one is make it experimental. So it's really about ditching the customer insight PowerPoint or deck as people like to call them and go feel what other people are feeling. So IBM does this thing called Operation Bear Hug, where they go to their customers and actually watch them interact with it and they talk to them about it and they try and understand how they're using whatever product it is that they want to talk about to really get the customer's feedback. I like that. I like all of those. Those are great. So there's three. Make it easy, make it every day, make it experimental. The experimental one resonates with me a lot. And I think that's the one where when you think about companies that are really successful and being innovative they're really about experimenting and in fast failure but also the like constant iteration i think when companies lose the idea that nothing is perfect when they think that their processes are perfect i think that's where innovation really goes right out the window i also think that this is what makes humans most successful is humans who can adapt mindset of experimentation and test and iterate like those are successful companies for sure but what is it that you're saying about humans just that that humans should feel com- more comfortable with experimentation i think a lot of humans look at experimentation it feels weird to be saying words. stop saying humans yeah. <laughs> it's really weird I think a lot of people there we go uh look at experimentation with a negative lens of like oh by experimenting I am, maybe going back to a past podcast, not gritty somehow, mm-hmm. when really I think that's a demonstration of your grit. Yeah, I think... Would you consider yourself good at experimenting? I... With experimentation? I think... I like to think that I'm good at it, um, and I'm good at facilitating it. I'm good at helping other people do it. I think the problem I have, which is what a lot of people struggle with with innovation, is like holding the 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 tide straight or whatever it's called in in continuing down that that iterative path because at some point you just get comfortable and you don't want to put in the effort to iterate and take the feedback and adjust and adjust and adjust and adjust. It's I think always knowing that nothing is sacred and when you are comfortable that there's probably something that needs to get fixed. I think that's what kicks me in the back of the head every once in a while. And then I go, okay, we're too comfortable. Like something is wrong. How do we fix that? How do we start to iterate and make this thing better? How do we get uncomfortable again? Yeah. Do you think you're good at it? Do I think I'm good at experimentation? I think I'm getting a lot better when we were peers at that company that we don't say the name of. I don't know that I was great at experimentation. I think I saw a single pathway, or innovation for that matter, I think I saw a single pathway to success, and success at that company at that time really looked like a lot of politicking and Mm -hmm. butt kissing and keeping your head down and like not speaking up or being very gritty. And I actually remember having left that company and then coming back 
telling myself to consciously like take off the rose-colored glasses or the red-colored glasses, I would call them, and be more comfortable with actively opposing or critiquing what I was seeing up there. Yeah, it's interesting because in in big companies, a lot of the meetings are just there to kind of everybody kind of agree and move on their way. And I yes. think when you do say like, I don't think that's it, or here's why I don't think we should do that one thing. I think everybody kind of stops and it's a very jarring thing. And I think that's where, especially in those bigger companies, doing that is probably the best thing to help them be more innovative. But it's about if the culture wants it, right? If the culture isn't going to accept that, if you're in a, I don't know, uh, a Korean company, Korean companies are very by the book. This is how we do things. There isn't a lot of place for being innovative in a non-structured way. If you want to go through a Six Sigma analysis, yes, they will absolutely get behind that. You'll go through all 40 steps of the Six Sigma and you will come out with some changes to the current process. But if you think about it from a empathic uh, design thinking perspective, it's not going to work in that culture. And that's where it's also like partially, is that going to work in the culture that you're in? And if it doesn't, is that a place that you want to be? Because a lot of people get very comfortable in that culture. And, and maybe that's the place that works for you. And if it is great, find that culture and live in it and and progress the way that you want to. I think if, if that's not it, then find the culture that fits more and really be there to push and challenge and, and push on the empathy side of things. Yeah, let's hop into the end. Bring it on home. Let's bring it on home. So since this was mine, I've got a few notes written here. Um, designing a tool, uh, the, the golden rule, I think, with all innovation and with most things is innovate for others as you would innovate for yourself. So when you think about innovation and you think about building a process, when you think about making someone else's life easier, think about how you would do that for yourself and do it for them. Take as much care with other people's process as you would with your own process. So I think that's number one for me. What do you got, Shannon? What's coming to mind for me is a little bit what we talked about at the top of the podcast, which is I remember when I was leading a team, how many people would say, oh, I can't innovate in this role. Like, this is just not the nature of this job. Like, I'm an analyst there is nothing to innovate on. It's all been done before. And I just like adamantly disagree with that statement. I think that is a mindset limitation and not truly a role limitation. Innovation doesn't mean that you have to design a new product. You can innovate by designing or redesigning a process. So if you're stuck in that mindset of believing that this podcast doesn't apply to you because you aren't a designer or in an innovative role, rethink your role. I think maybe I've mentioned this before, but I would encourage my old analysts to literally keep a list in the back of their notebook of all the processes or tools that they hated to work within. Mm -hmm. And then see that as their opportunity once their bandwidth improves, as they get more comfortable with their role, to innovate from that starting point of pain within for themselves. Yeah. I, I always put it a lot less elegantly to my analysts and to my teams is like, What's the thing that sucks the most about your job? Yes. Yes. And like, if that thing sucks for you, it probably sucks for everybody. Like, yes. it's not like you're the only person that has like the suckiness of it. So like, how do you take that suckiness and, and remove a lot of that friction? How do you make life less sucky? That's, that's 
in and of itself being innovative, right? Because you're asking yourself that question and you're trying to make things better. That is innovation. Everyone is an innovator. I think Shannon is 100% correct. I think we look at designers and we look at people who build things mostly as innovators and being innovative. But I think the most innovative things are when people fix process or or um, files or spreadsheets to make them less friction for the users and the ones who are thinking about their end users and, and showing that empathy as they're helping other people's lives get easier. Yes. Empathetic and energized to innovate. Uh, The only thing I will end us with here is always ask for feedback, iterate, talk to your customer, gain their perspective. They are always, always, always right. I like it. So, Rami, should we talk about what we're going to talk about next week? Yes. I mean, what you're going to talk about next week. Workaholism. I'm excited to talk about it, and I'm sure it'll be super energizing. I promise it will be. All right. We'll be talking about it. Okay, I've been Shannon. I've been Rami, and this is Workplace Hugs. Thanks for listening.